I'm glad to be here again. And I'm totally thrilled that, that everybody else is here. And uh, I am going to put myself on, I'm going to get gallery view for myself because I'd much rather look at all of you. And there we are. Well, I am delighted to be here. And, um, and settling in, uh, I've, I've noticed that in the uh, in the past few times that we've met, uh, I like to do something that's a pause in the beginning to set a tone, to settle in. Uh, I feel like we've all just been doing something, especially now that we don't have to commute to a place. We all are doing everything we're doing, and then all of a sudden, boom, here we are in a contemplative or partially contemplative workspace. So uh, we like to really settle in. And uh, then I'm going to talk a little bit about what's been on my mind. And then we'll do some period of meditation together, a longer period. And then we'll talk about, um, we'll talk about the third part of what the Buddha laid out as the practice plan, which is um, training in morality, training the mind, and training for wisdom. And on, in retreat settings, we emphasize a lot the training of the mind and being able to uh, develop a certain level of concentration that you can do on a retreat more than most other places. And uh, uh, certainly a level of uh, uh, mindfulness, alertness to what's going on and how it's responding, how the mind is responding to it. And a level of uh, refinement of judgment, given what I can clearly see in this moment, I'm going to choose this path and not that path, which is what wise effort is in the Eightfold Path. Uh, that's a really important part. It's the undersung hero, by the way, I think, of the Eightfold Path. It doesn't sound somewhat as sexy as wise mindfulness or wise concentration, but wise effort is really the important part. That means the ability to discern moment to moment or crossroads to crossroads. I have a choice here. I can respond this way or that way. And this way is gonna respond and create suffering. And this way, if I respond, will not create suffering and will diminish suffering. Hmm, what should I choose? And sometimes I think to myself, that's the most important part. That's what we should think about, not only when we're sitting or walking or doing a contemplative exercise, but when we're going to put gas in the car or shop in the supermarket. Hmm, what's going to make myself the most comfortable and everybody else? Anyway, so what I really have been thinking about so much since the beginning of learning in this different way and really talking more about everyday life as the venue of practice and every activity is the venue of practice. Talk about what the Buddha taught about um, the development of morality, of ethics and how ethics themselves and uh, the deciding to live a life of scrupulous ethics is not is also for the benefit of one's own happiness and for the benefit of all beings and a totally viable path of itself without even the contemplative part of it. As a matter of fact, oh, Colin, weren't we going to say? Do I have to say about the link? Do people need to know the link now, or can they just find the link later? Uh, to the document. 
Yeah. Um, whenever you whenever you want me to share it with the group, I can I can share it. Okay, great. Thanks. So we'll have a document. <laughs> Assuming we get there. I'm planning to get there. <laughs> so this is what I wanted to start with. I had a whole bunch of start here, no start here. Now start by telling that story. Talk, start by telling this other story. I want to tell you that one of the things that I most liked about the Olympic Games were a couple of particular moments. Maybe you can think a moment. And the people did some remarkable things and they broke all kinds of records. And you think, wow, how could a human being just do a thing like that and, and do it so well? And I think about the hours and hours and years of practice that people did. It's monumental, a number of people and time and effort and planning that went into somebody being able to jump over an extremely high pole or run a mile, uh, run run of uh, 800 meters uh, in a in an incredible new time is much more than one people. It's all the coaching and all the parents and all the vitamins and all the thinking and all the planning. And I think about that, that one pe person stands up and gets a medal but the number of people who are actually standing up at that point, uh, including the teachers who stayed after school to coach the people that could go to swim practice or whatever, is an enormous number of people when a person stands up and gets a medal. They're standing there for so many people. And really what I've been thinking about since thinking about that in a number of ways is that nobody does anything alone. Everybody does everything together and everybody is responsible and I've, I've been really quite high on that, uh, really exalted from it. So I'll tell you my particular thought of the Olympic Games. You may have seen it. Um, early on, Katie Ledecky uh, edged out by maybe uh, two-tenths of a second uh, Ariadne, Ariadne Titmus of Australia for the gold medal in 400-meter freestyle. And, the, and they were in lanes next to each other because they had the fastest heats. And they came blazing into the final. And Katie came out, I think it was two tenths or who knows, seconds faster than Ariadne. And they popped out of the water and hugged each other. And it was just such a good feeling that, you know, it wasn't like just I did it. They popped out of the water and hugged each other and were laughing and hugging and kissing. And then the other people who had been in the pool, who were the runners up to them, were around and everybody laughing and hugging and kissing. They all did it together. I, even as I tell you now, I get a little bit teared up. I hope you did too. Because that is so, The they did it together, you know? And to be able to be so thrilled that, you finished and you almost won. Hey, you got the gold, the silver medal, not the gold, but you were in the pool at all and you showed up and you completed the swim. And to be able to appreciate the other person's virtuosity in the middle of it outshining yours for that moment is really only for that moment because later on in those same Olympic Games in the 800 meter freestyle, uh, Ariadne Titmus beat Katie Ledecky. So for one second, you're the world champion 
uh, in, in, in the pool and then not, but to be able to celebrate everybody and they'll come up and hug each other. So I want you to think about that. Then I want you to think about, this is an, this is a, an essay I wrote so many years ago, you'll know how many years ago when you give the story. I'm just gonna read you two paragraphs. Jerry Rice, the San Francisco wide receiver, was interviewed by Al Michaels during the halftime of the 49ers versus Saints game on Monday Night Football. They talked about all the various league records Rice already held. Al asked, which other records would you like before you retired? Jerry smiled and said, I'd like them all. Then Al asked, of all the great moments of your career, which stands out for you as the greatest? It was when we won Super Bowl 23, Jerry replied. It was my first Super Bowl. And in the last two minutes of the game, Joe Montana threw a pass to John Taylor, who was in the end zone. John Taylor caught that pass, but I felt as if it were me. Okay, I see a lot of people nodding their head. Now, what I'd like you to do is think about between this morning now and 24 hours ago, yesterday morning, think of some moment in which you did a kindness for somebody. You know, we're not, we're not so much out these days. Maybe you held a door for somebody as they were going into the bank. Maybe you went back to your car to get your mask that you discovered you'd forgotten as you were walking down the street. Maybe you helped somebody put their packages into the back of their car. Think about it, or think about a moment in that same time period where somebody helped you do something or was aware of your presence or said something to you that was helpful. I'll give you a period to say, I'll give you a minute to think about it, in which I suggest that you close your eyes and remember some moment and replay it in your mind, where you were, what you did, what they did.
And then just feel your body here now. With breath coming in and out of it, breath after breath, without any effort on your part, assuming you're well and you feel okay, you're not having an allergy attack or, or don't have some lung disease. Remarkable, we don't have to remember to breathe. The body just breathes on in concert with the world around us. And with those stories of Rejoicing in the well-being of others, in the triumphs of others, in the miraculousness of others. To feel the pleasure of that. And then when you want to, opening your eyes and looking around. It would be magic for the numbers of people who we are to be in one room. We'd have to all transport from all over the world. So it's totally magic that we're all together now. It is magic. <laughs> when I was a child, Dick Tracy would talk on a walkie-talkie wristwatch to an, a, a, um, an accomplice, an assistant, who was across the street and around the corner. And the big deal was that he could talk into his walkie-talkie wristwatch and talk to somebody out of um, the line of vision. Says Diane R. would like to control my camera. Is What do I do with that, Tolan? Just say no. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Uh, just out of their line of vision. I can speak into my wristwatch and say, call Mary Ann uh, in uh, Paris, and it will. <laughs> and I'll hear her. That's really amazing. What's well, not only amazing that it could happen, but that somebody figured out how that could happen. That's really amazing. There's a way of really thinking of what's uh, are really amazing and what human beings can do that exalt the spirit. And I'm, I made all, I, I picked out all these examples. I'm sure you figured that out already to uh, begin to make the point that the path, um, the path to being, to being able to move through this life with some equanimity through difficulties and through periods of, um, challenge depends on really at some level really being exalted about being in a life and rejoicing in life and rejoicing in being part of life even if somebody else 
is doing the thing that I feel exalted about. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to swim and win a swimming race or jump over a 14-foot hurdle or figure out how to program long-distance communications. But people did that. And people do extraordinary kindnesses. They, they, they leap out of the water having lost a race and hug their opponent who just won it. That's a great thing. And it requires the ability to say, it's not me who's winning. It's us who are swimming at this point. And somebody is winning. Now is not my turn. It's the other person's turn. Their, their parents and family are jumping up and down and being excited about it. To be as excited as other people. And really, in some ways, I think, well, how does this have to do with the Buddhism, with Buddhism and what the Buddha taught? I think those moments of realizing that I can have as much pleasure from Katie Ledecky swimming marvelously and somebody else figuring out how to talk to their wristwatch and call it Paris is that I'm part of what, what it means to be alive. It's, I'm, part of, I'm part of a world of living and everything that came through this whole world of creation ever is part of my karma all my genes, all my relatives, all my forever, all the things that happened to me, all the people who taught me. And to really have that memory bank and that vision to be able, especially in these times of a lot of discouragement and a lot of challenge. I've been hearing people say on news reports and other places, well, now this is too much. I could do this pandemic and I could do the quarantine, but now I'm losing patience. <laughs> How can you lose patience? It's, it's not like somebody promised you it was going to be over. Not that it's coming to you that it's going to be over. It's just what's happening. When you become impatient, maybe you get impatient because someone you're supposed to meet on some street corner is not there when you get there. And maybe if you're somebody else, not me, because I don't have this particular turn of mind. I think, ah, oh, they're always late. Uh, they don't, uh, they have no respect for me. They're not treating me with respect. They come late. Somebody else, somebody with my neurology would be thinking, uh-oh, they're late. What happened to them? Maybe someone mugged them on the way here. I have to worry about that. Everybody comes with their own apparatus that translates what's happening into their story. And then they believe it, and then they get flustered about it, and then they create cortisol in the mind to deal with the, 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 the confusion of what's happening and the story they've told themselves. And then they believe it worse, and then their minds are so confused by the flurry that when the person arrives, we say something not maladaptive, like, how could you be late? You know, it worries me so much, or... Where were you? You don't really think about me. Just they were late and now they're here. And just the, the, the pandemic was happening and it seemed like it was getting under control. And now it seems like this variant is maybe a, a not so easy to control. So I have to make the next step now. But the business of I'm, I'm running out of patience as if that would cause the end to happen now. You could send some letter to the cosmos and say, 84% of people have run out of patience and the cosmos says, okay, we're going to change it. <laughs> it's, it's one of the things I think about patience 
is it's really a cinnamon, a cinnamon, a synonym for wisdom. It's not happening yet. We thought it was happening, but it's not happening. Something else is happening. We have to do something else. I also felt we've got a lot of people, but maybe somebody wants to say something about what was, say something in one sentence, put your hand up and Toland will see. It, what did you think when you thought about Katie Ledecky or uh, Jerry Rice or yourself and the moment of kindness? Want to say something? Yeah. I thank you so much, particularly for that, because I think so much of it depends on being seen. When someone offers you your play, their place on the line, for whatever reason, they noticed that you were on the line. They came out of their self, you know, their silo of self-preoccupation and noticed you there. It's a moment of connection. I think there are philosophers way more renowned and greater than I, like Martin Buber, who said nothing exists except connections. And there's a way in which I really sometimes get that, that there's nothing that exists. There are only relationships. We think of us as being a separate I. I thought yesterday of, um, of a book I'd read uh, uh, 1994, it turns out that I looked up, I researched where it came from. It's a book in 1994, and I, I don't have the book. I remember the name of it. And uh, uh, I remember this line out of it. It was written by a Catholic priest who was living in Japan, serving as a Catholic priest in Japan. His name is, I don't know if he's still living, Elred Graham. And the book is called Zen Catholicism. And he talked about his training in Zen with a Zen teacher in Japan. And um, he said to the Zen teacher, just describing in his own mind what he experienced as he sat. And that as I sit and I focus on my breath, uh, all the stories leave, my mind gets quieter and it's just present. And uh, then there's nothing left except uh, God and me. And uh, only God and I are left. Uh, and the, the Zen teacher says, uh, next thing is God's gonna leave. And he said, no, maybe I'll leave, but God is always there. And the Zen teacher says back to him, it's the same thing. And I remember that now, uh, wow, it's almost 30 years ago, because it's the same thing. There's no one there, actually. There's no one there at all, which is a, one of the three things that the Buddha said. There, there is this mind-body apparatus, of course, that's going around and breathing and interacting and is the repository of so many thoughts and memories and opinions. When I gave the example before of uh, I could be on a street corner and my date doesn't show up and I think, uh-oh, something terrible happened to them. And somebody else will think, uh-oh, they don't love me. Now, I had my background that, that says you're going to be startled by terrible news. 
and they had a background that, that was different. Everybody's got a repository when you say, you know, I come to it with an open mind. I think that one of the things that people are discovering in these days with really challenging their own uh, biases or biases that they haven't noticed is that we really don't have an open mind. Uh, uh, tabula rasa, they used to call it, nothing's written on it. Everything is written in the mind from all the experiences that we've had. But I like that idea that nobody's there and uh, God will never leave. He said, it's the same thing. That's really, uh, I, I thought about it with uh, Katie Ledecky's story. Somebody won the race and then somebody will win the next race and then somebody will win another race. Someone's always winning a race somewhere. And uh, it's problematic to think I won this race. And uh, as Rifka was saying, you have to go back to school, put away the medals and you're a regular student. That otherwise you have to do the next race. Otherwise someone will, I, I listen to the sports announcers uh, <laughs> who I try to keep forgiving for what I think is uh, a biased form of sportscasting, but I guess that works for keeping audiences. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't do for them to say, who, uh, who knows how long they'll keep that record. It'll probably be broken this afternoon. They have to make a big fuss about what the record was. That's how you make theater out of it. But it's not that big of a deal. It's some, somebody's up, somebody's down, and it's somebody else. We are all in this together. Um, really, to say you matter as much as I. That's a really incredible thing to do because we are wired to be taking care of ourselves. We are neurologically wired to take care of ourselves and our kin. To be able to see past that and think about other people's kin and rejoice in them. Uh, and going back to the, 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 the past that gets caught in the end zone, when, when that happens, in my experience, the, um, the television cameras focus on the parents of the person who threw, the, who threw that pass and sitting in the stands and they're so excited. And I feel very excited for them. My children never played football. It's not something I did, but I, in my, in my bones and in yours too, I'm sure, you can feel how those parents must feel. My child did something outstanding. I used to feel that years ago when um, my children, one of my children trained for many years at the San Francisco Ballet School and she was quite gifted and subsequently decided not to pursue it as a career. But I knew I was sitting in the audience with all the other mothers of all the children who had small parts in Nutcracker thinking, Someday, maybe my child is going to be the Snow Queen. Or that uh, I remember that a close friend of mine went with me to the Nutcracker uh, one year when my child was under one of the eight children under the dragon with legs sticking out, running in, in under the Chinese dragon. So there are eight pairs of black leotard legs running out under the dragon. And she said to me, Emmy is the third one. Now, you know, how would you do that? You have to really, 
recognize, oh, she was right, Emmy was the third one. So you really do, first of all, look for your kin. To be able to be in a place where you look at other people's kin and you feel that gives me as much pleasure as my own. The Dalai Lama said it's much better to cultivate a mind that rejoices in the good fortune of other people or who is touched, that is touched by the difficulties of a world full of people, than to be limited to your own small audience of one. The chances of your being pleased or the chances of your heart opening with compassion are eight billion times as much to one that you'll advance more if you have the whole world in mind, not just yourself. I also read this yesterday. I read it as a preface to some article about something about what we're talking about. I actually don't remember where I read it at this point. But it's quoting John Cage, the musician, the composer, John Cage. That when you start working, he's talking about a certain painting style, that when you start working, everybody is in your studio. The past, your friends, your enemies, the art world, and above all, your own ideas all are there. But as you begin painting, they all start leaving one by one, and you're left completely alone. Then if you're lucky, even you leave. You get that? I have to go look in a few pages to see if people are doing yes, yes. How many people think are touched by that? You can push the button that says, I love it. How about that? There's a response. <laughs> okay, Kate loves it. <laughs> I thought about it a lot. A lot of people love it. They decided they love it. When, then they start leaving one by one and you're left completely alone. Then if you're lucky, even you leave. What I want to suggest is that, this is a radical thing too, is that you weren't there at all, ever. Your opinions were there, but the, the opinions are always coming up uh, and that trick you into thinking there's a you who has the opinion. But just there's a lot of there's a lot of cerebral stuff going on. And when it gets quiet, there's room, space, there's a creative interlude. Sometimes not infrequently, frequently, in other words, people come on a meditation retreat including myself and maybe you. And after several days, they say, you know what? I've been sitting here for a few days. My mind is uh, not quiet because it never is quiet. It's always doing something. It's always orienting you in time and space. There are certainly periods of time when it's not disturbed. It's not agitated. It's peaceful or it's... Uh, warm-hearted or it's uh, uh, at ease or it's uh, congenial, but it's not cramped in any way when it's not tight or worried or frightened. 
when suddenly the mind creates something, creates a, a haiku. People have come in, I've done it myself, where suddenly the mind writes a poem. I, I, I think to myself that I, I think that uh, I, I don't know this for a fact, but it's my imagination that composers are walking along somewhere and all of a sudden they think, da 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 da, da 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 da. And then they go home and write it down on that piano and figure it out. But there has to be a mind that's in a receptive mode at ease not preoccupied with anything, and then something new can just arise in it. It was a, 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 a philosopher, I've forgotten his name, Joseph Goldstein, who was one of my teachers, used to quote him frequently. And uh, a person who said about the sense of an I in here, he said, if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. That the presence of an I is, I am worried, I need this, it is mine, give it to me. Uh-oh, uh I'm going to, I am, I am imperiled. When the mind is, uh, when the mind is at ease, it doesn't need anything, it doesn't need to get rid of anything. It doesn't need to get anything. It's really open to what's ever happening. That, by the way, is the third of what the Buddha called the three characteristics of experience. So really, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the clock and I really want us to talk about uh, how the path of um, cultivating a mind of integrity is really a viable path. Cultivating impeccable action is a viable path along with contemplative practice, along with text study, along with didactic study to really discover the pleasure of being delighted to be part of the unfolding of life not constrained by the I and how comfortable I am or am not or how taken I am with my own story. You matter as much as I is the opposite of being self-absorbed. So the Buddha has two rubrics that people always learn or often learn in their opening classes in Buddha Dharma. Uh, and one of them is uh, the Four Noble Truths, which maybe you haven't heard. Most people have. Um, how do you do this, yes or no? Raise your hand, that's it, I'll look. Anybody, I will see how many people need to, how many people have heard of the Four Noble Truths and have heard of it, heard about it? Okay. Would like to know, okay, oh, good, good. Okay, a lot, a lot of hands. All right, how many people have heard about, now take down the hands. Now, how many people have heard about the three characteristics of experience? It's all other thing. It's not a whole other thing, it's a whole other name for the same thing. Okay, good. So the three characteristics of experience, which I'm gonna tell you right now, 
dovetail in. They're another way of saying the Four Noble Truths. And the first of them is that everything is transient. Transient are all conditioned things. Anything that happens, that they had a time when it didn't happen, then it happened, will end, will end. This too is gonna to pass. It's an aphorism, it's a saying in all of the languages I, I know and in and all of the philosophies that I know, that this is a temporal world that uh, even the tallest mountains, they don't seem to end. Mount Tam out my window seems to me look the same as it did 60 years ago when I moved into this house. But it's 60 years older. And maybe there was a fire once, but it's different. Things change. Some things very slowly, some things very quickly. When people die, we feel differently when they're 95 than when they're 45, because we have a sense of what a human average lifespan is. And then we feel, nobody says about an old person who dies, uh, uh, they died way too young. They just died, you know, there's not a way to, you know, things happen to people, accidents happen to people, illnesses happen to people. Um, we don't get on a line that comes into this world and goes out in an orderly way. And life is in fact, because of that, uh, when you think about it, when as a person growing up, you think about that, you think, uh-oh, first of all, there's no play, there's no way out but forward. You can't say, uh-oh, life is too hard. I don't wanna have a life, too bad. They're already here. And there's no way out, but either a long or a short life till whenever, and then you die. Somebody, I can't remember their name, but also some thought leader, some decades ago, actually when I was a young person, was known for having said, when he was diagnosed with some illness, he was dying. And he said, somehow I always got, I got it, that people all eventually die. I just didn't ever think it was gonna be me. And that's actually what happens with people we, or the people that we love. But we all know by whatever age, that, uh-oh, that is it, that one of the things that is a constant in everybody's life is bereavement. That bereavement when people die, bereavement when they leave us, bereavement when they turn out to be not who we thought they were, uh, when whatever we are disappointed about, we wanted it otherwise and we expected it otherwise, turns out to not be that way. It's like I'm losing patience with this, virus. The virus is going to win unless we do other things and become impatient. We have to everybody get everybody vaccinated and that. But the first thing, it's the first noble truth. Life is challenging for everyone. And it also is the first of the three characteristics. Everything is temporal. It's also a piece of good news that, uh, that uh, if you uh, are having some unpleasant, if you're having an unpleasant stomach flu and you really, it's, it's really unpleasant, you think this is not gonna go on my whole rest of my life. If, uh, uh, women in labor, they all could say, all right, you know, in two hours, this is gonna be over. That um, you're having some uncomfortable dental procedure, even when 
we are bereaved of someone. It's not helpful to tell people this is going to, you know, this is that your grief is going to pass. Uh, A, because even if the intensity of the grief mitigates the, after a while, it still is, is grief and it's still painful. And it doesn't do people any good to remind them that it'll pass. I stopped because I just had a thought. I may have told you this story. I'm sure I might have, but because uh, people say, so what good does it do to know, to know that? When my mother died, not totally unexpectedly because she had frail health, but she was a young woman in her 40s and I was in my early 20s. And the following morning, dressing to go to the um, funeral, my aunt, my mother's sister, I, I, I said to my aunt, we were getting dressed to go to the funeral and to the burial. And I said, um, should we put on makeup, Miriam? Uh, do you wear lipstick to a funeral? And she said, you know, I don't know. She said, it's too bad Gladys isn't here. Gladys would know the answer to that. And that was such an idiotic kind of an answer because it was too bad that Gladys wasn't there. But it was too bad because she was dead. And that's why it was too bad. And it wasn't about the, uh, the, the cosmetic consultation that it was too bad. And we looked at each other and it was such a kind of a ludicrous thing to say that we both laughed. And I noticed to myself, I am laughing in the middle of this first giant bereavement of my life. My mother was really my, my totally dearest relative. But in that moment, I think I knew that I was still alive because I laughed and that time would pass. I didn't think that all consciously out, but I think it was a support to me that my laugh mechanism worked. It reminded me I'm alive and things are gonna go on. I don't know, I made that up ex post facto, but I think it's true. And it's, it's 60 years ago now, more. That's the first of the three characteristics. The second of the three is that everything ends. And so did my grief, but I, not my memories of her life and how much I loved her. Uh, the second characteristic is that uh, there's suffering in being parted from what loves. There's suffering all the time. Suffering is ubiquitous in life. Disappointment about the presence or absence of something, about the absence of the vitality you had when you were young, the presence of some unpleasant situation in your life, that the mind is, has a hard time being satisfied. It wants more or less or different all the time, unless it's trained to say, this is okay. This is what's happening and it's okay. And it's okay because everything's gonna keep on happening and keep on changing. That's the way things are. I remembered yesterday that um, when I first started to practice 40 some years ago, the teachers used to tell a samurai story 
which I came up into my mind again this week, that I didn't so much appreciate at the time. Um, it has to do with a, um, a particular warrior type samurai who was uh, going up and uh, going through villages and terrorizing people and came to a certain village and terrorized the people and they all left and went into the monastery and found the abbot sitting on um, his zafu in repose and the, uh, the leader of the samurai brandished his sword and said, how can you possibly be? Why haven't you fled like everybody else? Uh, don't you know that I can run you through in the, with my sword in a moment without batting an eye? And uh, uh, the samurai and the uh, abbot is said to have said back, and I could be run through with a sword without batting an eye. And I, I said, I think I was kind of, um, I don't know. I didn't like it, that story. I didn't think I'd be able to do that ever. And I thought it was silly. And I didn't think that was a thing that people, people were supposed to do. I just wanted to be less nervous. I didn't want to be able to be run through by a sword. So I thought that was setting the goal too high for me. So, uh, but I actually get it now as a as a um, as an iconic story. I think it means, you know, that 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 Abbott knows that this experience is so empty of an I who owns it that things arise and pass away, and pandemics go on longer than you think. And the mind that gets it, that things just happen because other things happen, that's what's happening. That it's able to say, you know, this is what's happening. It's okay. You know, pandemic's back. So we'll go back and put in a supply of things that we need during a pandemic and we'll settle down and watch more Netflix or meditate more or learn a new language on Babel or do something, but you know, it's not happening now to go back in the world. And what's happening is happening because of everything else that's happened, because of the nature of viruses, because of the nature of, of vaccines, because of the nature of politics, because whatever. But it's, it's not happening to any particular people. In this case, it's happening to the whole world. And it's not because of any one particular people, but the karma of this moment, this is what's happening. So the three characteristics of the characteristics of impermanence and suffering and inter interconnectedness. Every, when I started to hear about the, back, the virus a year ago and hear about that you could go to a, uh, an event and be three places away from someone who had the COVID virus and was coughing and you could be a carrier and you could go home and give it to your children who could give it to X number of people. And um, that seemed to me very much a, 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 an example of karma. This happened because of this, that people sometimes call say, well, the Buddha said, what did the Buddha said? Buddha said, because of this, that, or because of that, this, that things happen and then other things happen. Some planes crash and the one before it didn't, or some cars crash in a highway accident 
and some car was the last one before the accident that didn't crash. Didn't have to do with who was a good person, not a good person, um, moral, not moral. It's just where they were as the, car, the cars were going by. Sometimes I think that the whole world is billiard balls bouncing off each other in an endless game of billiards, bumping into each other. I don't want to make it sound like it's meaningless, but uh, I'm also probably uh, not guided by any sense that it, anything is here purposely in order to, it's just here, I think. That was way more long-winded than I thought I was going to be. But it was what I want to say as a setup for talking about um, adopting um, the path of morality, the path of intention, the path of ethicality. Cultivating an ethical life as a way of not only expressing the desire, as a way of, it, of expressing the wisdom that everyone is suffering. That's the nature of the human experience. Everybody suffers about different things, but everybody is parted from what they love. They don't get what they want. It doesn't last. We are all the time being challenged to get over this or that disappointment. And at the same time, life is studded with moments of amazement and beauty and snow queens and pirouettes and uh, 400 meter freestyle relays. Well, there are all kinds of things to marvel at and there are all kinds of things to feel disappointed about. I once had a teacher now of blessed memory. My teacher's name was uh, Rabbi Zalman Schachter. And he said, you know, when a wonderful experience happens uh, and you really are enjoying it, it's fine, enjoy it. He said, also make a, make a deposit in the bank account of your mind. And someday when you're feeling a little low, you can pull up that deposit and run it through your mind, which doesn't mean living in the past. It means that you figured out a way to pick up the mind when it believes the story of this isn't worth it, life is endless, and it's not coming out good, and I've run out of patience. And, uh, in order to pick up your mind so you can take care of the next person. I heard, yes, I read somewhere about uh, the diary of a young person uh, talking about a young person now no longer living but anyway, from when that person was a young person struggling with depression and talking about his ability to not end his own life, he said, I realized that there are people who need me and that there are people I don't know yet who need me. And that in itself is life. It's people to, for everybody to know that there are people who need me and I can respond to it. People I don't know yet who need me and who recognize that responding to need, that what pulls us out of our own silo of self-absorption to connect with other people. 
and the people who can connect in a marvelous way and amaze us with their magnanimity, celebrating other people, take caring other people. This is a, a poem by Baudelaire, which I hesitated about reading to you because it, the name of the poem is Stay Inebriated. And of course, we're talking about having a clear mind. So I thought, well, it's not very Buddhist to read a poem called Stay Drunk. But Enivrez-vous. Um, it's written in French and translate. I'm reading you the English translation. It's a poem by Baudelaire. He says, stay inebriated. Nothing else matters. If you could, would not, if you don't want to feel the horrible burden of time weighing on your shoulders and crushing you to the earth, stay inebriated with wine or with poetry or with virtue as you will. And when I think about that, I, I took it because of the all with virtue that I feel very picked up when I see Katie Ledecky turn around and embrace her competitor that just won the race. And if sometimes on the stairs of a palace or on the green side of a ditch or in the dreary solitude of your own room, you should awaken and that drunkenness be half or wholly slipped away from you, ask of the wind or of the wave or of the star or of the bird or of the clock or whatever flies or sighs or rocks or sings or speaks, ask what hour it is. And the wind, wave, star, bird, clock will answer you. It's the hour to be inebriated. Be inebriated if you would not be a martyred slave of time with wine or with poetry or with virtue as you will. And I want to suggest that what we've used this morning is poetry and talking about virtue. And it, I feel exalted by it. I, I have the, the same with the, the, the Jerry Rice poem goes with Baudelaire. Just, just look around at the world and let it lift you up and let it move you to think. There are people who need me. There are people that I don't yet know who need me. And that in itself is life. Let yourself be called by life to involve yourself in it. So, okay. Now, <laughs> figuring out, yeah, I have an idea. I have an idea. I was trying to figure out how we would do a meditation on refining the qualities of the heart in Buddhist technology and Buddhist psychology, there are the Four Noble Truths and the Three Characteristics of Experience, which all, we all say the same thing, that the undisciplined, unawakened, unschooled mind will be always challenged and always struggling. But if you see really clearly that it's not about you, it's about us, that there isn't really a you who's having you, uh, there is an there is this body who is having this situation, but it's the creation unfolding that this area of cognition is part of. 
went to the degree I I can um, identify with that and not my story. To that degree, am I lifted out of my silo of self-preoccupation? And I have the pleasure of rejoicing with other people or taking care of other people. And I want to suggest, posit, that the from the point of view of the Buddha, that was as important as anything else. And for most people who, a very small number of uh, Buddhists in, say, India, or anywhere in the Buddhist world, are uh, devoted to contemplative practice. A very small percentage of people are monks or nuns. Mostly they're people who honor their ancestry and also are devoted to kind works, who are good, who are kind, who are thoughtful, who have cultivated the what are called paramis, the, the qualities of the heart. The qualities of the heart that the Buddha taught are um, 10 of them in standard teachings. And Toland is, in a minute, Toland is going to put them up on, no, maybe you can put them up, Toland. Where are you? Uh, let's see, here they are. So everybody should be able to see it. And you can scroll down. And you can see there are 10 qualities of the heart. Let's, let's do our meditation now in two ways, at least. Let's start with loving kindness, which is the next to the last. And you can see if you look at the chart that it says... For each of the paramis, that uh, it, it that if you practice that, it develops a certain habit in your mind. That the the quality of loving kindness, which is a quality of just natural goodwill to all people. I wonder how much. Well, one of the things I I have been doing, so I'd like to suggest it for you, uh, to the degree that ever I find myself in a Starbucks or in another place where you might be sitting down with a coffee or waiting for a friend to have lunch and your the friend isn't there yet and you look around and I don't take out my cell phone. That's one of, one of my practices is I do not take out my cell phone. I leave it in my purse or in my pocket and I look at the people and I wonder about what's happening with them. And more than wondering, I wish them well May you feel at ease. May you be having a good day. May your mind be happy. I do that for however long it takes for my, my companion to show up. It's just a practice. Who knows? Not do it every day because I'm not meeting people every day. But you can do it on a line in a supermarket. All these people standing. They're just around. I can just stand there tapping my foot and beginning to be annoyed that it's taking so long. Or I can be thinking good wishes to them. It says that it develops the habit of well-wishing. Using any of those for an example. Now that I started to do that consciously, I said, okay, I'm going to do that. So that my mind is not just in a neutral mood. My mind's in a mellow, blessing mood. Why not? It's, it, it'll be even lighter. 
Uh, and then it says, how does it develop that habit? It's, it says celebrating positive qualities in other people. So if I look at people, I see the person at the next table over, either by themselves eating or waiting for someone to studying a textbook. Thinking to myself, oh, good, look, this young man is studying. May he do well. Uh, this one, may they do well. May they do that. It's a lovely habit to have. Be well. Be well. I just was thinking about, as I said, that it just popped in my mind that not everybody knows that goodbye means God be with you until we meet again. But uh, it got shortened to good be, good, goodbye. But you actually bless people. God be with you until we meet again. Means may everything go well with you. May things go well with you. And it says cultivating forgiveness. One of the things that if the mind is in a blessing mood and you suddenly think of cousin so-and-so that offended you whenever, or your ex-spouse or somebody else that usually comes up in the mind along with an addendum that says, ah, <laughs> or fooey or something like that, that if you're in the middle of blessing, it, it tends to mitigate that. May they be well. What have I got to lose? Actually, nothing to lose and a lot to gain. I think about maintaining the real estate of my mind in a pristine way. We'll talk about the rest of them later, but let's sit for 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, 20 is long for being online, I think. Um, now let's do that. Let's sit for 20 minutes, 15 minutes. And I'll, I'll lead it for the first minute or two. And then I'll leave you on your own for the rest of the time. I'll give you something to do. But... Breathe in and out. Of course, you're breathing in and out. What else can you do? As you breathe in and out, let your body relax. I heard a teaching from Biko Analio a few years ago, and he began the sitting by saying, let your body relax, let your mind relax. And quickly scan around in your mind and see if there are any 
difficulties in it, if there are any vestiges of negativity or confusion, any problems in the mind, anything other than at ease. And he said, and if there are, just sweep through the mind with any of the Brahma Viharas with loving kindness or empathic joy or with compassion until they're gone. And then we'll continue. And what was interesting to me is about must have, um, less than a minute later, he said, okay, now we'll continue. And I thought, well, that's usually a big job to me. Really. But I was really impressed. And I, I bring it up because I find it to be true that the intention to fill your mind with non-personal other people wishes, wishes for wishes for their well-being, delight in their well-being, acknowledgement of their being at all, and wishing them well because they're a person, instantly really clear the mind of contention, which starts to play the movies of why you're hesitating and eases the mind. It's a nice thing to do for other people and it's a gloriously redemptive thing to do for yourself. So in the next 11 to 12 minutes that we sit, feel yourself breathing and think of people in your life. This one and that one and this one and that one. So just by the thought, invite them into your mind and wish them well, and wish yourself well. May I feel safe, may they feel safe. May I feel well, may they feel well. May we feel well. Safe and well is enough. Let's just do that.
and get ready to come back together as a group. Take a little time and look at the people that are in front of you in your gallery view. And then look at the people on another page and on another page and pick out one or two people who don't know that you're looking at them and wish them well. Because I think we could spend the whole time doing this. Look at all these people and we're in their houses, their apartments. Everybody's got a face like their parents or their grandparents. I look much more like my Aunt Miriam than I do like my mother. Because we've all got genes from here and there. I was thinking of, um, it passed my mind. I was thinking about what I wanted to do with this half hour. And I thought maybe we'd go in groups and talk to each other. But maybe we will at the end just to say goodbye to each other. I think the complications of getting there and having a topic and coming back, my mind is more quiet than that at that point. Um, I think I want to tell you one more story because I really hope to come away from this morning having felt that the point that I was thinking about that dedicating one's own attention to the well-being of others is not only a nice thing to do it's not a thing to get a Girl Scout medal about it's a lovely thing to do but it is redemptive it is redemptive on its own. There is no more important recipient of my goodwill for other people than myself. There's an interesting thing to say about that from several points of view. One of them is that the Buddha said, there is, if you search the world over, you will not find anybody more worthy of your own well-wishing than yourself. And when I heard that to begin with, when I began my uh, mindfulness, my metta practice of wishing well to other people, I thought to myself, well, you know, how could that be? I am not, you know, I'm fine, but I'm not the best person in the whole world, you know, that, uh, but 
that the the person most worthy of your well-wishing is yourself is the Buddha's way of saying, I think, that if what I'm hoping for this mind-body existence to be able to do in this world is to be available to connect with other people, I have to be whole and I have to be available to connect and I have to feel not frightened and not worried and what, that really I can't actually even begin to wish people well with a whole heart unless my heart is whole. So I, I think that, I think over the years that's become so more and more clear to me that we say sometimes as a teaching thing, well, think of someone that you could wish well. Uh, think of your grandchild, think of your childhood next door neighbor. But really think of yourself. And there's no one who can feel the concerns of your heart, the pain of your heart. It's not about who's worthwhile. It's whose pain do you feel when you feel you feel your own. Even when I'm with a friend who I'm attending to because they're in some difficulty, I don't feel their pain. I feel the pain that comes up in me that my friend is having this difficult time. Um, I feel the happiness in myself that she's been my friend for so long and how much I value her and how delighted I am to be able to take care of her. That the, the, um, the business of being uh, giving away, uh, so to speak, giving away your well-wishing to somebody else does not diminish your own. It actually is allowing your heart to practice well-wishing. I mean, it's this apparatus that the well-wishing is coming through. That's why one feels better when one is finished praying for other people. I mean, it's one's own heart that has to be available for it. I think about uh, the heart. I'm sure that the heart, the way the Buddha is talking about it, is not a, an organ with a certain amount of real estate in it that you could have three quarters for other people and one quarter for yourself. I don't think it works that way. But and I don't think it's located in that physical organ. I think it's what uh, what is the um, background music of your mind. And actually, mind heart is usually the word in, in Sanskrit or Pali that's used to say that's what's wishing. If there's no one here, what's wishing those wishes? The mind heart consciousness that's associated with this mind body is what's wishing. And it's actually, you know, in some ways, it's not just the obverse, the inverse of of uh, enmity, it, because that would just be um, that would just be uh, oh, it, um, like indifference. Like I say, well, all the enmity is gone, but it's we're supposed to be able to feel, and I, you know, I think we do. We're able to more than just the absence of enmity, but the presence of real kindness towards people out of wisdom, that the fruit of wisdom, the fruit of really learning that everybody who's living is, is really, it's a constant, uh, life is a constant challenge to get over disappointment. Isn't it? Really, I mean, that makes it sound grim, but 
that's really the hardest thing that we have to do. It's not grim. But it's also very easy to get disappointed. Sometimes when I'm teaching, I'll say to a class, even early in the morning, how, how, how many people so far got annoyed at anything this morning? Well, I'll say it to you. How many people got annoyed this morning about anything? You put up your hand or raise your hand on that thing that you could show. Then we think, what did you get annoyed at? Oh, the, you know, the TV didn't work or my phone was out of, uh, my phone was out of power or my this was out of that. Or, it, a million small things happen and the mind says, fooey, fooey, fooey. And it's, it's not that fooies don't arise. The difference is that fooey in a, uh, an awakened mind doesn't last long because it's so ridiculous. You know, I had a few fooies this morning. <laughs> Whatever happens, you know, I don't even remember. Oh, one of the big fooies, I, I don't know if you heard it, but my next door neighbor, uh, whose uh, house and yard borders on mine, has a lot of redwood decking outside of his house. And for the past two days, someone has been uh, sanding that redwood decking. And I met him out in the driveway yesterday and he said, oh yes, you know, I haven't done it in a few years, supposed to do it every year, doing it this year finally. So, uh, because otherwise it's not good for the redwood. But all day long it's got and it's not a screeching sound. It's not like a, it's not like a, a, a rattling sound. Did you hear it this morning? No? Yes? I'm glad because I had a little bit to worry about it and I didn't want to mention it because I didn't want to bring it to your attention if you didn't hear it. And so any number of times and I'm thinking uh, all kinds of things about my neighbors are really nice person uh, and it's his redwood and I'm hopeful that his redwood will be all fixed and not be deteriorated because now he's fixing it and it'll be good and it'll get all stained or whatever you do to redwood and then I feel good about him and, and then I said I wish it wasn't happening now now while I'm teaching the class I said, well you know I said let's have to even think about that let's think about next week it won't be happening it's, it's not about not having a nervous system that responds and says, this is unpleasant. That, that doesn't happen. I used to think about the first line of the um, uh, faith verses of the third Zen patriarch, are the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And I decided when I first heard it years ago, that's not me. I have so many preferences. I like this better than that. I like this coffee better than that. I like all kinds of things. So, but it's actually, I think it's a mistranslation. I think the great way, which means the way to having a, a peace of mind and a delight in life is being all right with not having preferences. You know, that somebody came and said, this is your preference to have him be doing this. We know what I kept doing. I thought to myself, this poor guy who's doing that, it's his work all day long, every day. He's doing that, making that noise. I hope he's got, I, I think he's got sound canceling earphones, but maybe his whole body. I looked over the fence yesterday and I see this 
person who's working and needs to be doing it by hand all over this whole big deck or but I, I and I and it didn't go away for good and all. Uh, then it comes back again, and each time I think, I hope he's got his voice can noise canceling. I hope they've gone away, the neighbors for the day. Uh, I uh, next week won't won't be happening. That just it's not that fooey doesn't arise in the mind, but that fooey doesn't become a big deal. That could be the, the fifth noble truth or the first noble truth. Life is very complicated. Don't make anything a big deal. That doesn't have to be a big deal. Every time I hear a story about somebody says, you know, da 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 da, someone said to me, and can you imagine? It doesn't have to be a big deal. It's not a big deal. Really, nothing is a big deal except that you make it. But I wanted to tell you one more Olympic story, so it should at least be a small deal that I started to say it before about my friend, uh, uh, Rabbi Zalman, saying, be sure to write down in your memory bank uh, moments that were fantastic for you, or moments that were very special. Most people will report when I first fell in love or when my child was born or uh, when, um, when I saw my child be born or when anything that happened happened that was meaningful to them they, and they really felt it. I remember that story when Miriam said to me, I put that away in my uh, my uh, bank account in my mind. She said it would be nice if Gladys were here. <laughs> too bad Gladys isn't here. It really is too bad Gladys wasn't here. She was young. She was my mother. I loved her a lot, but she wasn't and she isn't, but she's also here all the time because she looks just like my one of my daughters and her stories are still in my mind. So she's not living, but she's here in, in the way that people always are. So I wanted to tell you an Olympic story. Some of you may have heard it before because I always remember it around the Olympics. I uh, Before I was only teaching meditation, I was for 10, maybe 20 years, a yoga teacher and I taught at the College of Marin, and uh, I taught various yoga classes, and I taught specifically a yoga class for older adults, and I really remember this fondly now, that I am really an older adult, and I, it, and I did the same yoga practice, not maybe the entire same, but I did much of a similar yoga practice as I did with all my classes, and it was my wont, not to go around and fix up people or adjust their body. That, that was not the way of my teacher and not my way. I would do in the front of the class, whatever it was that I was describing. And I would assume that people were watching and they would do it as well as they could. And if they weren't doing it as exactly, um, it didn't matter. And they would be watching me and seeing what felt good. So I didn't go around and interact with people. I didn't like people to come in and fixing me, as a matter of fact. So that's, I got that style of teaching from my teacher. And one day, uh, a man came in, in the older adults class, and he was uh, walking on the kind of half crutches that Yitzhak Perlman walks on. That, 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 uh, and he made his way to a, a mat in the back, and he sat down. And I did the class, just 
the way I always did and with instructions. And, and then at the end of the class, uh, people were leaving and I went towards the back of the class because he was getting up to tell him thank you for having come to the class. And I thanked him and he said, uh, thank you very much for the class. I really enjoyed it. He said, and I won't come back. He said, because it's too hard for me, really. So, but I really enjoyed being it. And you're a very good teacher. Thank you very much. Thank him. And then he makes his way to the door. And when he's halfway out the door, he turns around and said to me, you know, I just wanted you to know that I was a member of the United States Olympic rowing team in 1904. And he went, and I said, thank you very much for telling me. And he went out the door. And it was one of those things, just like Miriam said to me, you know, it's too bad Gladys isn't here. And we laughed because it was funny. That, and I thought to myself, oh, I'm laughing in the middle of, uh, in the middle of this grief. I, I should remember that. When this man said, I was a member of the 1904 Olympic team, but I can't come back, it's too hard. I thought to myself, this is also a thing that I'm supposed to, I didn't think it in those words, but I filed it away in a way that I knew in that moment, this is an important insight. I need to remember this. And probably if we had time, maybe we have time. Maybe you'll think of something in this next minute. We have some few minutes where someone says something to you that we really understood. This is a piece of information that I need to have that I'll just file away right now. That your mother said, or your father. I mean, we talk a lot about insight. Do you know that before mindfulness was called mindfulness in this country, it was called insight meditation. Uh, anybody remembers that one? It was called insight meditation. And before that, it was called vipassana meditation. And uh, vipassana meditation, in the, and vipassana translates as the Pali word for um, seeing clearly. It's really seeing clearly meditation. And that's what it is, seeing clearly that if you're a member of the 1904 Olympics team and it's 1970 or 65, you might not be able to do an old people's yoga class. Can you think of something that somebody said to you that, that you knew at the time, I need to remember that? Take a minute to think. Anyway, I love it when we're together. May you all be well and thrive until we meet again. And we meet again in early um, September. So may we all and everybody else be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering.